Please open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans, the 8th chapter. As you turn, uh, just to let you know, it's been my joy to be among you again. Uh, I have many fond memories, particularly of that you would call the wee prayer hut that was next to the old building. I will never, ever forget, I think it was probably the first time I ever preached in a prayer meeting in Lisburn, and Miss Margaret Dick was praying, and she prayed for me. I was in Orlando at that point in time, and she said in her own inimitable way, Lord, he's a man that's been sent by God. And that just thrilled my soul. She was upholding me before the throne. So I have, I think it was that particular Monday night prayer meeting when my driver was late getting me there and your minister, Mr. Douglas, was standing at the door very patiently waiting for me to come, praying like mad, I'm sure, that I would show up. But uh, I did show up and it's been a blessed time to come to Lisbon every time I've been able, almost every time, to make it to the, to the province. So thank you for your prayers. I would encourage you to keep on praying. Um, need those prayers. I need God's direction. I don't want to run ahead of him, nor do I want to lag behind. And I need wisdom. I need God to open doors and to give me clear light as to what I should be doing. So do as the Lord lays it upon your heart. Remember uh, this clay pot before the throne of grace. And God would once again use him in his work. Romans chapter 8, we'll commence reading, please, in verse 1. Romans chapter 8. Verse 1, that's all here, the Lord's Word. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren... We are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. 
For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. (coughs) For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. May God add His own blessing to that reading from His Word for His name's sake. Can we bow our heads in a word of prayer? Let's all seek the Lord together. Our God and our Father in heaven, as we come to the final time when we look into that inspired, powerful, error-free Word of God, we pray once again there will be a word in season. Thou dost know every need of thy servant tonight on every level. Thou dost know, our God, each one whom thou hast brought in. We, we thank thee that we're here by divine appointment. And Lord, we pray that the Spirit of God would be the one who's the teacher, enlightening our minds and showing us just exactly that word in season for each one of us. We would not be negligent of striving to listen to the still, small voice those thoughts that Satan would try to inject into the hearing of the word in the minds of thy people. We pray against him. We pray thou wilt bind him. We pray, Lord, that thou wilt give to thy people that wonderful sense that thou art here to speak to them. Thou hast promised to be in our midst. We, we believe that, Lord. That means thou art here right now. and Thou art here with a word. O oh God, give power to preach that word. Hide thy servant behind the Savior, behind the gospel, and enable thy people to see the Lord afresh tonight. It is that vision that changes everything. Grant it, Lord, we pray. For Christ's sake we ask it. Amen and amen. As we come this evening to this final message where we're dealing with this theme of the Christian's pursuit of holiness, we're taking up the truth found in verse 7 of James where the Holy Ghost, mind you, it's the Holy Ghost who said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. James clearly teaches that the devil is our opponent because he says, He is to be resisted. And James clearly teaches in that verse that Satan can be resisted. And he also clearly teaches not only that the devil can be resisted by all or any of God's people, but he is met with such a resistance that he can be overcome. Forced to flee, so it means. The Holy Spirit did not simply say, resist the devil and he will leave you. He said, resist the devil and he will, he will flee from you. Do we believe that? Oh, I know we believe it in our statement of faith. You have to, you believe the scriptures, God doesn't lie. But do we believe that in our own lives? 
Do we believe that? Because that's been our experience. We have resisted him and found that he fled. Every time that particular Greek word is used in the New Testament, that word flee from us, it refers to fleeing from danger or fleeing to a place of safety. This is the devil looking at the child of God, resisting him as a dangerous place from which he must flee and find a place of safety. He doesn't feel safe. Isn't that amazing, child of God? He doesn't feel safe around believers who are resisting him. He will not feel safe around a church that is united in resisting the devil. And I say united because it only happens as you believers in this church unite together in that mindset that if we resist him in our private lives and when we come to church, we're going to be resisting him corporately. And he won't find this a place of safety for him. He knows it's dangerous to his cause. He is nobody's fool. Sometimes that particular word is translated by the word escape. As when John asked the Pharisees when they came to his baptism, ye serpents, ye generations of vipers, how can ye escape? It's the same word, flee the damnation of hell. Where are you going to find a place of safety? When the Pharisees arrested Jesus Christ in Gethsemane, Mark writes that, as far as the disciples are concerned, they all forsook him and fled. It's the same word. They were afraid. They thought it was dangerous to stay there. So James says that if he has resisted the devil is going to flee as an enemy that has been overcome. He has been bested on the field. I get it. On earth is not his equal. I get it. But obviously, the Holy Ghost is not contradicting himself when he says if you resist him, he will flee. You will overcome, even though he's stronger than you. That's what I want to deal with this evening. So if he's going to be resisted so that he will be overcome, and I just want you to think about right now those, those things that trouble you, those sins that keep haunting you, that you seem you can't get a handle on and you keep coming back to them again and again and again. So if we're going to resist him, that we will be overcomers. Then the more we understand his strategies, the better equipped that we will be to overcome him. Remember again that the grand reason for this battle with Satan and his kingdom. God has created us, his redeemed, to glorify him and to enjoy him. Since that chief end is the end of our existence in life, it is Satan's aim to incite us to dishonor God, to not glorify him, and to tempt us to find true joy somewhere else, true pleasure somewhere else other than God. And Satan does all of this out of his hatred for God, which incites him to try and to frustrate and to defeat God's purpose and God's people in the world. You recall that I pointed out that since the Word of God is the only rule to direct us how we might glorify and enjoy the Lord, this is the book that tells you how you go about doing that. 
then Satan wars against God's people by seeking to promote this disobedience to the Word of God. Unholy living. Don't obey His commands. For every commandment that's given in God's law, Satan is bent on getting you to not obey those commandments. Having other gods before Him. Taking His name in vain. Breaking the Sabbath day. Dishonoring those in authority. And we could go on down the list. It is this attempt to compel us to disobey the Word of God that led us to those three verses in 1 John chapter 2. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father. It doesn't come from him. It's of the world. I hope by now you will be able to give anyone that asks you the question, what is the world? The world is that organized system of humanity that is under the rule of the prince of this world. The organized system of fallen humanity that's under the prince of the world. So it is the world, is everything, it's anything that is opposed to God. The world is everything that Satan uses to try and prevent this chief end of our life. And all he wants us to do is live in ways and talk in ways and think in ways and respond in ways that really are not glorifying to the Lord, but actually praise the devil. Because that's what sin does. And that's what he's after. Sin glorifies Satan. He wants you to sin as much as he can get you to sin. I said last night that he uses this world that's within our hearts. The, the flesh is there. It's the world. And he appeals to that. That's, that. that's an ally he finds. And he leads us away from the path to holiness. Therefore, the question is this. How do we do this? How, how do we resist the devil? Uh, I... I'm well aware that being a preacher, that it's easy for us to use pulpit speak, preacher's jargon, without unpacking, without explaining what this really means, what it really looks like. How do we do that? Resist the devil. That's, I can throw that out there, but aren't you going to ask the question, how, how do I do that? How in my life, in my home, in my family, in my church, how do I actually resist the devil? I tell you folks, the devil is quite happy if all you hear is, well, you've got to resist him and he'll flee. Without you finding out how I do that effectively so that he does flee. How to resist the devil is the final message. Number one, mortify the deeds of the body. Verse 13 of chapter 8, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. The Holy Spirit leads us to put to death 
the deeds of the body. The deeds of the body is that sin that dwells within us, that ally of the devil, that world that's within us. The Holy Spirit does that to mortify. That's like Romans 7.23, the law of sin which is in my members. There's a law. It's a governing power, and it's in my members. It's in my, the, the, the body is just the, the, the tools that this inward flesh uses, whether it's your eyes, your ears, your hands. It doesn't make a difference. It's still the same thing. The body is the members that are being used by this flesh within. When you come right down to it, the deeds of the body can be summed up with one simple word. I mentioned it last night. The deeds of the body can be summed up with one simple word. It is self Sin is all about self. It's all about pleasing self, but not pleasing God. Because self, remember, this is Satan's ploy. All along, Satan wanted God's throne. And that's what he seeks to work in us. Because self is all about putting self on the throne of our life. It's doing what pleases self. Not pleasing the Lord. Satisfying self. It's self that's to be served. It's self that's to be obeyed. It is self that's to be loved. Self that's to be adored. That's what it's all about. That's our, that's our battle. That's our war field. That's, our, that's our, the area we get into and have our difficult struggles because it's all along saying, flesh says, please me, please me, please me. But we're commanded by God to put self to death. In whatever form it appears, Our work is to execute whatever there is in our lives that opposes God. Let me say first under this heading that putting sin to death, mortifying the deeds of the body, putting sin to death is a debt we owe to God. We owe Him that. Verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. Therefore, that is a reference to all that God has done through Christ and His Spirit, if you look at the context, in making us sons of God. Because He has made us sons of God, because He has placed us in His family, we have the adoption of the Spirit. Joint heirs, could it get any better than that? Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. All that belongs to Christ belongs to us. We can't, We can't begin to imagine what a great privilege God has given to us. Now the Holy Ghost says, because of that, you're a debtor to God. You're indebted to Him. To walk after the Spirit and not the flesh. According to what the Apostle is saying in this passage, this distinctive mark, the distinctive mark that we are indeed indwelt, It shows that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Remember he said back in verse 9, If any man have not the Spirit, he is none of his. That's solemn words. If you don't have the Holy Ghost, you don't belong to Christ. Because everyone who belongs to Christ has the Holy Spirit indwelling them. If you're saved tonight here in in this building, you have the Holy Ghost in you and He will never leave you. It's permanent. So the distinctive mark that we are indeed indwelt by the Holy Spirit that we are truly the children of God, that is that we, by His Spirit, put to death the sin that dwells in us, the deeds of the body. I emphasize we because Paul writes, if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, 
Sin is alive in us, and we are to kill it. Have you looked at that doctrine of sanctification in that light? We are to kill it. That's what mortify means. Put it to death. John Owen, the Puritan, said, quote, Let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. He who doth not kill sin in his way takes no steps towards his journey's end. Mortify is in the present tense. Indicates not only that they were currently doing it, keep on doing what you're doing, but it means that the apostle was telling them to keep on at it. Yes, you're doing it, but keep on killing it. So, and I think this is the $6 million question, what are we to understand by the call from God to mortify sin in our lives? You've had a hard time doing that, haven't you? If you want to be honest. Let me say first what it does not mean. Mortifying, putting sin to death. I'm just talking about your day-to-day living. As you go about in the home, with the kids, at work, in church, everywhere, we're to kill sin. What does that not mean? To mortify a sin doesn't mean that we can completely eradicate sin. Did I hear a big sigh of relief? We cannot completely eradicate sin in our lives. John made it very plain. If any man says he has no sin, the truth is not in him, and he deceives himself. Paul made that clear when he said, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, not as though I had already attained to this mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I, they were already perfect. I would have thought that if there was anyone who had attained to the complete eradication of sin, it would be the Apostle Paul. But he wasn't. Nor does it mean that we have to mortify sin. What it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we have occasional victories over sin. That's not putting sin to death. In a time of deep trouble where fear has gripped the heart of the child of God, the fear of God's judgment, the fear of something dreadful is going to happen, there has been an awakening to sin, an awareness of the offense that has been committed by God. You have been brought into some really serious, deep, troubling waters, and now your conscience begins to, well, well, I better get things right with God. Make sure there's nothing that's going to bring this to bad thing I'm afraid of to pass. And then we put away our sin. And we turn to God and we pray with weeping. Just like the children of Israel did all throughout the judges. You know, they were under bondage and it got so bad they cried to God and He delivered them. 
but did they kill their idolatry? It was occasional. It may appear that sin has been mortified, but it's not long after the trouble disappears that that sin comes out of hiding. And we're right back to where we were. It seems like the sin has been put to death, but it hasn't. So that's not what the Holy Ghost means by mortifying, putting to death, executing the deeds of the body. Let me say, secondly, what mortifying sin, what killing sin does mean. First, first, it is the habitual weakening of sin. It's the habitual, habitual is the key word, weakening of sin. That's the other key. In Galatians 5.24, Paul speaks of crucifying the flesh with the lusts thereof. Crucifying, putting to death the flesh with the lust thereof. So when you go to execute sin, when you go to mortify sin in your body, whatever that is, and I'm sure you've got your own mind now, as far as what's concerning you, maybe it's your pride, maybe it's your loose tongue, maybe it's a bad temper, maybe it's the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eye, whatever it is, it doesn't really make any difference what it is. But it's still sin that you have to put to death if you want, if you're going to strive after holiness, you want to be like Jesus Christ. Are you with me? I, I don't want to, just trying to keep it simple because I have to understand it. So sin, when it's being put to death, it does not simply lie down, brother and sister, and say, okay, I'm done. You killed me. No, it struggles, and it strives, and it fights. But as you mortify sin in your body, it gets weaker and weaker and weaker. As a man who has been crucified on a Roman cross. They didn't die automatically. Remember that they were surprised that Christ said he was dead already? They'd be there for days on those crosses. Romans 6, 6, our old man is, literally it reads, our old man has been crucified with him, <coughs> that is Christ, that the body of sin might be destroyed that henceforth we should not serve sin. The predecessor to C.H. Spurgeon, John Gill, he made this telling comment. The old man, though crucified and under the restraints of mighty grace, and cannot reign and govern as before, yet is alive and acts and operates and oftentimes has great sway and influence. But whereas he is deprived of his reigning power, he is said to be crucified. That's mortifying sin. It is the denial of the things that feed sin. Titus chapter 2, verse 12, Paul tells Titus, denying, or it means rejecting, ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. There's your world again. Rejecting, rejecting, out of hand. Ungodliness and 
worldly lust. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, the Spirit of God inspired that particular part of His Word, abstain from fleshly lusts, which, what? War against the soul. Right? It wars against the soul. Abstain from them. Or 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts. Run away from them. Don't think you can stand up to them. Can I be blunt with you? Perhaps I'm talking more to the men. If you can't control pornography, you get rid of whatever media device that you use to look at it. It doesn't matter what it costs. You get rid of it. You kill it. It's an avenue into your home of cesspool, filth. You kill it. You flee from it. You don't put it away in your closet. Because then you'll go back to it. Your soul is far too more important to play with that. It doesn't matter if anything feeds the sin. If anything comes between you and the Lord. That's feeding sin in your life. It's strengthening the flesh. Can we really say we're striving earnestly and honestly if we just embrace what is the very... I mean, it's like... <laughs> You know, it's like going to war and giving the, the enemy the, the weapons. Here, let me help you fight against me. And you know that's crazy. Again, the Puritan John Owen said, Sin will no otherwise die, but by being gradually and constantly weakened. Those are important words. Sin will no otherwise die than by being gradually and constantly weakened. Doesn't happen all at once. Gradually, constantly, he went on to say, spare it, and it heals its wounds and recovers strength. It has this way, if you spare it, and don't constantly, constantly, gradually kill it, kill it, kill it, kill it, in a heartbeat. It heals the damage you've done and comes right back in full force. You want to know why you haven't gotten the victory? It's not only the habitual weakening of sin, but it is the ongoing war with sin. There is no clearer example, I think, than what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He said, I fight, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. The word castaway does not mean that God has cast him off, he's going to hell. It means disapproved. Because if he did not do that, he knew that he would be disapproved for his ministry. He would lose out. And how many preachers have lost out because they did not get engaged in this war with the flesh? They succumbed to it 
and they shame themselves and they shame their families because they did not get serious about warring, warring with the lust of the flesh. You know the real enemy, the only one who can stop me from being holy isn't the devil and it isn't the world. The real enemy is me. The devil can't make me sin. He can tempt me, but he can't make me sin. The world can't make me sin. It's me. I keep under my body. The word keep under, it means literally beat black and blue. He's not a shadow boxer. You know. He's not those fake wrestlers you see on TV. It's all phony, you know, beating. It's all fake. He's not playing. I'm not a shadow boxer. I'm not beating the air. I'm beating my body. I'm so serious about this. I beat my body black and blue. And I keep hitting it. I keep hitting that sin again and again to weaken it, to crush it. So I can weaken its power to oppose me in what I know I must do in glorifying God and enjoying Him. The Christian life is not about fun and games. It's about war. It's about fighting a battle every single day of our lives. From the moment we get up to the moment we go to bed. It's marked by self-denial, not self-indulgence. The Christian life is not a playground. Therefore, we must not play with sin as if it is. We must not play with lusts as if they are. This is war. Thirdly, Mortifying sin, killing sin, is winning. It's winning over sin. As I, as I said a moment ago, the complete elimination of sin in this life is not going to happen. I'm not making leeway for sin when I say that, but uh, we don't become sinless until we hit glory. There's so much in Scripture that tells us otherwise. But we can, we can, we can, you can, I can mortify sin to such a degree. We can so weaken those sins and war against them that we actually win the victory over them. We beat them. And we stop committing them. We stop doing the sin that we put to death. Or else death doesn't mean anything. The long story short is that putting sin to death is not an option. Our enjoyment of Christ depends on it. Our glorifying the Lord depends on it. Again, if I may quote Owen, 
the vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends <coughs> on our mortification of deeds of the flesh. It depends on it whether or not we're going to put sin to death. He also made this terse statement. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And it will kill us. It will kill our joy. It will kill our peace. It will kill our interest in the things of God. It will kill our interest in prayer. Of doing the things that the Lord has called us to do and to be. It will kill our testimony. Anything, anything but likeness to Christ is what we're going to live out day to day. What we're called to do. And I imagine this has seemed to be daunting for you. As it was for me. Kill sin. Why do I keep repeating the same sins? Why do I keep confessing the same sins? Here's a second important part to mortifying sins. Believe God's promise that you can overcome the world and the flesh and the devil. Believe His promise that you can overcome the world and the flesh and the devil. Tell me, tell me, how, how do the just live? And that word is not simply referring to having eternal life. How do they really live the Christian life? How do they really enjoy the Christian life? The just shall live by faith. Ah, here's what it comes back to, doesn't it? You see, it really, at the heart of it all, it's not all about your striving and mine. It's not all about, I have got to do this. Yeah, you have to do those things, but that's not where the victory comes. What is the victory that overcomes the lust of the world? Tell me, what is it? This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And it's not faith itself that does that work. Faith is always in the object, and that is in Christ. It's in God. It's in His Word. Little faith, small, tiny faith, really struggles to believe, to be confident. I can overcome. I can kill this sin. I don't have to be in bondage to it. Make no mistake, we are dealing with the foe that has the power beyond our wildest imagination. He is highly intelligent. He is extremely cunning and deceptive. He has a vast army of demonic beings who are at his beck and call. He has thousands of years of experience of studying God's people. He knows their weaknesses better than they know their weaknesses. He knows how to trap them and snare them. He is void of any compassion and motivated by intense hatred for God that will stop at nothing. But none of those facts destroy or diminish the promise that this text comes to every Christian. You resist the devil 
and he will flee from you. There is no hint of uncertainty in what James has said about the outcome of the battle and the believer and Satan. He will flee from you. You must lay hold of the promise. You must grasp it with the hand of faith and take it to God at the throne. Why does he give us the promises? Just to make us feel good? He gives us the promises that we might take them back to him and say, Lord, you said this. You promised this to me. Now, Lord, fulfill your promise. But there is this sin. There is this temptation. And I've succumbed to it so many times. But you told me, if I resist the devil, he will flee from me. And I will win. It's a promise of God. Isn't that what we're told in Hebrews chapter 11? It was through faith, it was through faith in God's promises that they, quote, subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong. You get that? Out of weakness were made strong. Waxed valiant in fight. Turned to flight the armies of the aliens. That passage is all about overcoming the devil. The tempter. The antagonist of our souls. How did they do it? They were ordinary people like you and me. They had the same struggles. Same passions, same struggles with unbelief, same struggles with backsliding and being prone to wonder, but they overcame. How? Hebrews eleven thirteen, they believed God's promises and were persuaded of them and embraced them. They were confident of the outcome. I think that's missing. Persuaded that what God said is true, embracing it. This is my promise, it's to me. And I am confident. That God will honor his promises. The devil wants Christians to think that they're beat before they lift one finger against him. Or if they've had one skirmish and they lose the skirmish, well, there's no point in trying anymore. Let me ask you folks something. How in the world do you think it would have gone in World War I or World War II if that was the mentality of the British and the American armies and all the allies? Well, we lost this skirmish. Let's just go back, pack up our guns and go home. But that's what we do. We try and we fail. And that sin just kills us. 
And the devil says, you're beat. Don't even try. Just expect that's how it's going to be. My, what a, what a prospect that is. What a prospect. I can't, I can't beat this. Just forget about it. I'm just going to have to just go through life and you know, sin, and I can't get any more holiness, and I'm not going to get any more Christ-likeness. Now, what we would like to have is someone to wave a magic wand, and it's all taken care of. Let's be honest. I'm not exaggerating. Just a button can be pushed. Victory! Without the war. Without the fighting. Third and final thought. If we're going to mortify the deeds of the body, realize that you are fighting an enemy that has already been conquered. And that we forget. Lest you think for a moment that my first point was simply uh, uh, the last point, a little pep talk about self-confidence, you're greatly mistaken. The ground of our confidence to overcome the devil is not in our confidence. It is not in our faith. It is certainly not in our ability to wage war against the great antagonist of our souls. The very foundation of any and all confidence that we can and ever will experience in the warfare is the victory that Christ has already won over Satan, already done. And that is a truth that the devil does not want us to remember, does not want us to relish and to think upon when we are just beat and beat and beat down again with our sins. That sixth statement of the Lord Jesus Christ from the cross, he's at his weakest physically. He suffered the equivalency of hell and eternity. At his weakest. It was not a whimpering, weak mutter at all. Having suffered the agonies of one who was accursed of God, having been forsaken by his Father in heaven, having drunk the cup of damnation dry, having conquered sin and death and hell, he shouted, the text says, he shouted one word, Finished! I won. Satan lost. And he lost forever. That is what crushing the head of the serpent is about. You and I can only overcome because Christ has already overcome. And the Savior's victory over Satan on the cross, when through his death, Jesus Christ secured the death of death and the defeat of Satan, he secured that victory for us. You and I will fail. You and I will get discouraged with our battle with the devil. We'll feel at times absolutely defeated, completely conquered, and unable to resist him. But you must realize that Christ did not fail. 
and he cannot fail. Even though we do. I know how you feel at times. I've been there and done that. Preachers are just saved sinners. That's all they are. I know you've struggled with some strong temptation and have been defeated. I know you have felt battered by the devil, so powerless against his wiles. You feel so weak at overcoming sin in your life. You've wondered if you're a child of God at all. But I want you to listen. Listen carefully to what Isaiah said about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, when he would appear on the earth. Bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. There you are, a bruised reed. So weak. It's a plant that is in and of itself weak and fragile and easily broken. But then he adds the word bruised. It wouldn't take much to finish it off. Is that how you felt? It refers to the child of God who feels his feebleness, his own sinfulness, bruised. Some calamity has bruised the reed. Perhaps it's been because of some failure, some fall, some temptation from the devil that was not overcome. And the believer feels crushed and he feels broken down by a sense of sin and failure and defeat. But Isaiah says when Christ sees that sinner for whom he shed his blood and won the victory over the devil, he's not going to come and hammer him or her. Tender. They need a tender touch. I'm so glad the Lord is tender. We're often not like that, you know. We see some sin in the child of God and we're just ready to come down hard. Not the Lord. He doesn't give up, and he can't. He's not going to come along to that child of God who has already broken down and make him feel more miserable. Martin Luther, he wrote of Christ, He does not cast away, nor crush, nor condemn the wounded in conscience, 
those who are terrified in view of their sins, the weak in faith and practice, but watches over and cherishes them, makes them whole and affectionately embraces them. Not only, Isaiah says, will Christ not break the bruised reed, but he will not quench the smoking flax. That little wick that's about to go out. The oil's run out. That little spark. Have you ever been there? It's barely visible. And you think the Lord's going to come and put out that little spark. But he won't. He'll come in a meeting like this and he'll have a preacher remind you of how Christ deals with his people in all their struggles and war with sin to tell you, I see you in your struggles. I know you feel like there's just a little tiny spark there and it's about to go out. But I'm going to cover you and protect you. And I'm going to fan that little spark into a flame. And you walk away from a meeting like this so glad to hear once again the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Satan didn't want you to hear that. We've had to bring up some heart-searching, thought-provoking truths But I end with this. I end with this. I end with Christ. You can have absolute confidence that your leader, your king, your master, who defeated Satan, will deal with him and your sin. All those things we talked about the last three days, Yeah, but he hasn't left it up to you, brothers and sisters, to figure it out. Jesus Christ is all you need. And what he wants, this has been coming up wherever I've been, not by design, in your province. It's the Lord saying to his people, I just want you to trust me. Just trust me. You can trust me. You believe that? I know you do. And what you're saying to yourself, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Greater is he that is in you and he that is in the world. I'll be praying for you. I'll remember this congregation that God will give you grace and more grace and more grace to strive for holy living. And you pray for me the same.
Let's bow our heads in prayer. The Lord has been with us. And we don't take that for granted. We pray that the Holy Spirit will come and cause the seed to take deep root, that we might bring forth much fruit to glorify Thee and enjoy Thee. Bless this congregation immensely, we pray. Let these meetings not just be a little series that go off in history and out of the mind. If it please thee, Lord, make it a a watershed experience for thy people. And they will say, the Lord met with us. Things have changed. We want this, Lord, not for our name, but that Jesus Christ would be praised. We thank thee for him. We thank thee that he is the tender Savior. How gently he deals with us. How roughly the devil deals with us. We thank thee, therefore, for Christ. Bless thy people here with great blessing, great joy of heart, great purity of life. In thy son's name we pray, amen.